Hi, this is Tom from The Happiness Quotient. Thank you for clicking on this episode. If you've chosen to listen to some of my first episodes, 60 or so, they were created before I changed the name to The Happiness Quotient. Don't be confused if you hear my voice welcoming you to Baker Street with Tom Pollard or if you hear me referencing my YouTube channel, Everest Mystery, you're still in the right place. Until I'm a big star and can hire an editor and producer to change every episode to reflect the platform, my gut tells me you'll be okay with hearing Baker Street or Everest Mystery when you click on an episode to The Happiness Quotient. It's all me. So let's just consider us one big happy family where we all learn together brought here by our common interests and our desire to create a better world one episode at a time. I love you. Thank you. Now to the episode. Welcome to Baker Street. This is Tom Pollard, your host. Thank you for stopping by. I love it when people visit, pull up a big cozy chair. I am going to tell an amazing story today, a story about how my life was saved by the spirit of an individual who had passed away many years before. And I was saved by this, the spirit of this person when I was caught in an avalanche in Alaska back in 2003. And that's the story I'm gonna tell you about today. So get comfortable, put your feet up and relax. music we're listening to is found on the Free Music Archive and you're hearing an album called Aeronaut by the Blue Dot Sessions and that song you are hearing is called Celestial Navigation. Very appropriate for today's topic. If you want to find out more about Blue Dot Sessions you can find them at www.sessions.blue. They're based in Turner's Falls, Massachusetts, not far from where I grew up. And it's a lot of good stuff. They have tons of material on this free music archive, but you can also find it on that website. Check them out and see if maybe their music fits for one of your projects, as it is for me today. Back in 1999, I was hired by PBS Nova and the BBC to be the high-altitude cinematographer on an expedition meant to go and find the bodies of George Mallory and Sandy Irvin, two climbers from England who had disappeared on the mountain back in 1924. And we were endeavoring to find not only 
these men, but try to discover whether perhaps they had been the first to summit Mount Everest, which would have been 29 years before we know it was climbed by Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay in May of 1953. And on that expedition were many incredible climbers and filmmakers, mostly from the United States and, and from England as well. And as one can imagine during a two and a half month expedition, almost three months, that there is extended periods of downtime. And when you climb a mountain as big as Mount Everest, you have to take a lot of rest days down in base camp, which is 17,000 feet. And the reason I'm telling this story is because I met somebody on that expedition known as Andy Politz. And Andy had summited the mountain on May 15th, 1991, and was a friend of the expedition organizer, uh, International Mountain Guides, Eric Simonson, a talented uh, climber and expedition organizer in his own right. And Andy told some really incredible tales. He spun many, many tales. And one day we were sitting around drinking coffee, and Andy told me a very, very sad story of how he had witnessed the death of one of his closest friends back in 1986 on the mountain known as K2, the second highest mountain in the world, which is located in Pakistan. And Andy was at base camp with the rest of his team. And before six o'clock in the morning, off in the distance, they witnessed a large avalanche sweeping down the face where two members from their team were carrying loads up to a higher camp. And very tragically, the two gentlemen in that avalanche, Alan Pennington and John Smolich, lost their lives. And the, the very, very hard part about that is that from where Andy and his other teammates were standing, there was really nothing they could do. They were too far away to do anything but just watch. And one thing really stuck with me. Andy told me that as the avalanche engulfed the two climbers, he saw that Alan Pennington's backpack was sticking above the snow. And to his knowledge at the time, he believed that the backpack was still being worn by him. And he thought, oh, well, when, when the avalanche stops, all he'll need to do would be to do a push-up, right? You know, like a push-up where you're, you push your hands away from your chest and, you know, push yourself up. And, and so he thought, oh, so when the avalanche stops, do a push-up and your head will pop right up out of the snow. And to his amazement and sadness, um, the avalanche stopped, and that's how it ended. Um, neither climber survived this very, very awful avalanche. And I thought about that for the longest time. I thought, gosh, can, can you be that, that close to the edge of, of survival and, and death and not know it? Right. You know, to, to think like, what 
what might have happened. And perhaps he was injured or knocked unconscious and there was nothing he could do on the way down. But um, an interesting story. And, and I kind of talked that story away. I actually went many years and more or less forgot about it. But about four years later, I was in Alaska. I had been doing some filming with my mentor, Bradford Washburn, the noted aerial photographer, mountain climber, and credited as the modern-day founder of the Boston Museum of Science. And um, during that time, Brad really got me to fall in love with with the Alaska Range. And one of the mountains on the Alaska Range that I became fascinated was a mountain called the Moose's Tooth. Uh, and they call it the Moose's Tooth because from afar, it, the, the mountain appears, looks a little bit like the, the molar of a moose. If you've ever seen the skull of a moose, you know what that is, but let's put it this way. It's sharp and steep and jagged. And on the moose's tooth is a thin line of ice and rock that goes up from the very base to a, a, a lower impression near uh, a ridge that leads directly to the summit. And, you know, back in 2003 or so when, when this happened, I um, it would have been a big climb for me. I had trained a lot in, in Chamonix and climbed in the Alps extensively for some years back in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, but but this ham and eggs route, which which was the one that we were after, was you know has a lot of short crux ice and rock sections. So you might have your ice axe in ice, and and maybe the the crampons of your boot would be on a nubbin of rock, and you'd stem and climb and manage your way up to the top, which was the exact kind of climbing I was mostly interested in. And the glacier below, in the many years leading up to it, climbers would have to land down on the Ruth Glacier and carry the equipment up to the base of the mountain, um, dragging sleds behind them or or whatever it was that they needed for the climb. But back in, oh gosh, I don't know, probably in the in the mid-1990s, a, a pilot from Talkeetna Air Taxi, a guy by the name of Paul Roderick, um, started... Um, actually landing people on the glacier directly below the route, which is insane because it, it takes a bit of gumption to do that. It's a tiny landing strip on, uh, on basically these airplanes have skis instead of wheels. And uh, the takeoff is extremely hair-raising because there's a point of no return where the airplane actually drops over the edge of the, the runway and collects enough speed as it is tilting its nose downward toward the Ruth Glacier to actually gain the lift to fly away. And we were able to find one of Paul Roderick's pilots to agree to land us on the glacier. And so that is what I did with a climber known as a guy by the name of Jed Workman, an extremely talented skier, climber, wicked cool guy. We were fast friends and we were landed at the base of the Moose's Tooth with the plan that we were going to get up uh, really, really early the following morning and do the climb, get up, tag the top, climb back down, maybe bivy uh, up top. But the idea that we'd do the climb in maybe 20 or 24 hours or less, and, and then we'd wait around the, the two days or so when we made an agreement with the airplane pilot to pick us back up. 
So the following morning, we went up to the base of of the ham and eggs route, which begins by going up a long snow slope that at first is very low angled and then it gets steeper and steeper until it leads to the the actual extremely technical part of the climb that has a rock entryway and then it goes into the steep ice climbing and Jed went first on a we were tied together on a rope of about 150 feet or so and as we made our way up we were in knee deep sometimes thigh deep snow and made a remark that holy cow we hadn't noticed that perhaps there was some avalanche danger there and um, therefore we kept very very close to some rocks on our right in order to minimize any any hazard if if a if something broke off and avalanched down. So after going up maybe five or 600 feet, 700 feet of, of relatively easy climbing, but steep as well in parts, I remember taking the, my video camera and stuffing it in my backpack. And coincidentally, I was filming a story for National Geographic. I had a TV show at the time called National Geographic Today, and they had agreed to let me film a story on my work in my climbing and filming in the Alaska range. So I stuffed my camera, my video camera in my backpack and and Jed disappeared over kind of this hump, if you will. And he was just about at the base of the rock. And he was like, I'm going to put a pin in here. And he was just about to hammer a piton into the base that he would have pulled me up on and we would have started our climb. And at that time, I heard a like this this telltale sound of of snow collapsing in the beginning of an avalanche I had a sickening feeling in my stomach that as I looked up over this bump that where above which I could see nothing, I looked upwards waiting for what I knew was going to fly over the edge and hit me. And a few moments later, a wall of snow came flying over and slammed me in the face and chest and knocked me over backwards on my back at which time we were, well, I was, I wasn't aware of where Jed was at the time, screaming downhill at a high rate of speed, more or less uh, covered in the snow I'd just been hit with. And I was afraid that if I continued to go downhill that maybe my head would hit a rock. So in that, I managed to turn myself face down in the snow so I could lift my head up a little bit. But when I did so, the snow, and we were moving at such a high rate of speed, the snow that was pummeling into my face as we were dragging down pushed into my throat, creating a snow plug, and I was choking and gagging, and managed to spit that out and bring my arms up to my face to create a a little cavity of air in front of my mouth. And I thought to myself at the time, because it was pitch black, I, I couldn't see a thing, and it felt as though there was the weight of a hundred people standing on my back. And at that moment, 
when I thought of the gravity of this, the literal and, and figurative gravity of it, I thought, what a dumb way to, to have to die. And I had a, a quick thought of my two sons back at home. I had a two-year-old and a um, you know, six-ish or seven-year-old son at home. And immediately after that thought, I was somehow reminded of the story that Andy Politz had told me in Everest Base Camp back in 1999. And I was, it, the, 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 this avalanche I was in was violent. I was being dragged mercilessly downhill and, and being battered and pushed and the snow was forcing its way into my mouth and I was fighting and struggling just to try to get a breath in and gagging and bleh, and spitting out the snow and and feeling the snow dragging across my face and preparing to die I was positive that this was it and there is this story that Andy had told me some years before and he said, I remember seeing the backpack sliding down the hill. And I thought, if only he did a push-up as the avalanche came to a stop, perhaps he might have lived. And I couldn't believe that I remembered that story. And I waited patiently as I fought my way. But slowly, the snow began to halt. And as it stopped, and I felt we were closer to a level part of the ground... Even though I was in pitch blackness, I did exactly that. I did a push-up. And wouldn't you know it, my body, just from above my belly button up, popped out of the snow. I'd been saved by this story that Andy had told me. I had no intention of trying to fight anymore other than try to keep that pocket in front of my face to hope that Jed had survived to save me. And it worked. And I lay there as the snow started to consolidate and freeze around my legs. And I, I fought and struggled to pull my body out. And I looked up and there was Jed about 10 feet away from me on the other end of the rope and he was covered in snow absolutely covered he had long hair and a beard and mustache and i remember looking at him ecstatic that we had both survived and he there was literally other than his eyes he was completely white in snow and i remember just laughing i it was the only way i could have any emotion other than perhaps crying. And that was it. I had been saved. Both of us had been spared the grips of this avalanche on the moose's tooth. To this day, I think of Andy's friends who lost their lives on K2 back in June of 1986. This wonderful friend 34 years old, Alan had three children and a wife at home. Because Andy had so passionately told that story, somehow it created a place in my mind and it saved my life. To this day, I'm 
well, I wouldn't say that I'm terrified of avalanches, but I am certainly weary of them and have been in another since then, coincidentally with Andy. And that's a, another story that I'll share some other time on Mount Washington in 2013. The seriousness of, of the loss of life in the mountains and, and, and what it's like to lose somebody is not lost on, on me whenever I remember that avalanche on the moose's tooth and how these two young guys had lost their lives doing what they loved. Our daily experience as individuals is oftentimes really concrete and predictable and we base our reality on, on, if you will, right, the hardness of those things in front of us, the people we know, uh, the, the house or the, or the apartment that we live in, um, the ground beneath our feet. But oftentimes, we, in our truth of the soul and the, and the incarnation that we are, transcends this concrete nature of day-to-day life. And, and when it transcends, we are oftentimes put in direct contact with the light, with the, the, the white light, the essence of, of from where we came, uh, the source of our being. And on that day, on the Moose's Tooth, in the Alaska range of Alaska, I was truly transcendent and touched directly, kissed on the lips by the white light. And I realized in that moment that I owe it to myself and to those I love and to those that are around me to keep my mind clear and aware of how important it is to continue to transcend even in brief moments, whether that be a few minutes in an automobile when we're driving somewhere or as we leave our car and walk into the home to remember to be thankful and for the source that allowed us to incarnate here in this realm. Remember that we create our reality with the thoughts that we empower. And when we empower thoughts of kindness and non-judgment, and we look at ourselves equally so, without judgment and kindness and love, we create a better world. And it gives others around us the opportunity to also feel that love and non-judgment. Like energy likes like energy. Like energy is attracted to like energy. Like energy creates like energy. 
So therefore, if our energy is positive and loving, we will therefore be attracted to and create more positive, loving, kind energy. Let's make that our choice today and every day and in every moment. You're listening to the Blue Dot Sessions, which I found on the Free Music Archive. If you want to learn more about them, go to www.sessions.blue. If you are interested in finding out more about me or would like to hire me to do a presentation about Mount Everest and my adventure life, find me at eyesopenproductions.com. And if you want to get in touch with me, in the upper right corner of my website, click on Contact, and it will take you to a, a little form. And fill that out and let me know where I can reach you. And if you want to hire me or bring me to your school, organization, or event, I would love to talk to you about that. Thank you again for being a part of Baker Street with Tom Pollard. I hope you will feel free to share this with friends and family and to reach out to me and share with me stories of inspiration, stories that inspire Baker Street with Tom Pollard. I will see you guys all real soon. If you're still here, please, I would love it if you checked out my Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash Everest Mystery and my YouTube channel, Everest Mystery. Check me out. And as always, leave comments and share your thoughts whenever you can and share it with friends who might be interested in hearing or listening or watching. Thanks so much.